Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. When you ask me to buy something, let's say you want to buy these shoes and you're on Safari, on your phone, and you want to buy these shoes. Usually you would just add to bag, go to basket, create an account or use Gas Jaga, whatever it is, go find your credit card and so on. Instead, from the product page, right from where you see the picture of the shoes, you tap share at the bottom of the browser and you share it to the Nate app in the same way you would share it with a friend via iMessage. You share it to Nate and then you tap buy. Tap share, tap Nate, tap buy. And what's happening there is that you basically send a request and you're saying, Nate, please buy this for me right now. That was Albert Saniger, the founder and CEO of Nate. And he is my special guest on this episode, episode 180 of the Leaders in Payments podcast. And I'm your host, Greg Myers. Albert was born in Barcelona and moved to New York where he started his entrepreneurial journey that took him from t-shirts to payments. Nate is a unified shopping wallet that allows you to share and shop your world without compromising your data. It exclusively targets the non-Amazon purchasing market by offering the shopper the opportunity to aggregate all of their purchases into one single app. They are retailer agnostic and their philosophy is consumer first. Nate functions as a direct extension of the consumer in that all that you have to do is find an image of the product you desire on your phone, tap share, tap Nate, and then tap buy. Nate will then purchase the order for you using a virtual card. Albert and I go on to talk about his journey to becoming the CEO including what fuels his passions both personally and professionally, where he sees the industry going in the next two to three years, and what it is specifically that makes Nate a way to shop versus just a place to shop. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Albert. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thanks, Greg, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So let's dive right in, if you don't mind. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that, and then we'll circle back to your professional journey in a few minutes. Totally. I'm Spanish. I was born in Barcelona in Spain, and then I grew up sort of between Barcelona and Paris. I went to a French school in Barcelona, and so French was sort of my second language. And luckily, I had a cousin who lived in Paris, so I was able to spend a few years there. And I moved to California for college. Then I've been living in New York after that. been living in New York for about 10 years now. And where did you go to college in California? I'm just interested because my daughter's about to go out there. Oh, amazing. I went to UCLA. Where is your daughter going? She's going to Chapman University. Amazing. You're not based in California. I'm in Texas. You're in Texas. Got it. Yeah, I'm in Dallas, Texas and taking her out there a week after next. So that'll be exciting. That's amazing. I have a one-year-old daughter and I am already ready for her to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> you got a ways to go. 17 more years. It'll fly by, I promise you. I bet. All right, well, let's discuss the company, Nate, and tell the audience what Nate does. Nate is a unified shopping wallet that allows you to share and shop your world without compromising your data. If you live in the US and you have an iOS device, you can download it today. You give Nate your name, email, shipping address and payment information. You can add as many addresses and as many payment methods as you want. And after that, you can unify 
all of your non-Amazon economy purchases in a single interface. So you never have to worry about, did I buy this? When did I buy it? What's happening with this? You have it all consolidated in one place. The non-Amazon economy represents 60% of US e-commerce, which is this year about a trillion dollars, right? And it is incredibly fragmented. It has 2 million retailers. So for the consumer, it's a very taxing experience to have to like buy one thing from one place, one thing from another place, and it's sort of very scattered. And you don't have that one-stop shop that you have in other categories like music with Spotify or food with DoorDash or transportation with Uber. So with Nate, we're trying to give you this one-stop shop for all of your non-Amazon economy purchases in one place. And we also give you more payment flexibility and more privacy as a result. And there's an entire social layer on top that allows you to share shopping lists with your friends who can follow them and buy things directly from them, sort of powering the creator economy, as well as sending gifts to friends via text message without having their address. Do you sign up retailers or is that just part of the ecosystem or part of what the consumer does? So Nate was designed from day one to be entirely retailer agnostic. And that is sort of what sets us apart from any other interface that is giving you comparable services, either a reduction in checkout friction or point of sale financing or discounts or lists, is that our business model is consumer first and consumer only. We don't sell software to retailers. We don't make money from retailers. And we do not need retailer integrations. It's purely a consumer business. So the way it works is when you ask Nate to buy something, let's say that you want to buy, I don't know, I'm wearing a pair of on-running shoes. Let's say that you want to buy these shoes and you're on Safari, on your phone, and you want to buy these shoes. Usually you would just add to bag, go to basket, create an account or use gas checkout, whatever it is, go find your credit card and so on. Instead, from the product page, right from where you see the picture of the shoes, you tap share at the bottom of the browser and you share it to the Nate app in the same way you would share it with a friend via iMessage. You share it to Nate and then you tap buy. Tap share, tap Nate, tap buy. And what's happening there is that you basically send a request and you're saying, Nate, please buy this for me right now. And Nate is going to that website on our servers and programmatically placing that order on your behalf. Now, we already have your name, email, address, and all your information, right? The big difference here is that we don't use your actual payment information in order to place the order. Instead, we issue a single-use virtual card in order to place the order on that website. So think of Nate as an extension of you, sort of like a micro-assistant of sorts that is entirely aligned with you and that protects your information in the process. Interesting, because most business models, I think you kind of said this, is they're focused on building a ecosystem or there's a lift by the retailer in some way, shape, or form, but you're kind of flipping that model and focusing purely on the consumer. That's right. And the thesis here being that When you're building a payments business, you have a choice to make, which is, do you represent the buyer or do you represent the seller? And there's no right or wrong answer. You just got to pick one lane, much like in real estate. Do you represent the seller or do you represent the buyer? And generally speaking, in a nice neighborhood in real estate, you should represent the seller because the house is going to sell no matter what. So you better represent the person who's selling it. But everywhere else that is not, quote unquote, a nice neighborhood, you're always better off representing buyers because you know that the buyer is going to end up buying something. That's how I see e-commerce. It's very similar. The only quote-unquote nice neighborhood is Amazon. If you are a payments business and you sell your services or products to Amazon, then you're golden. 
But anywhere else that is not Amazon, it's 2 million retailers in the consumer. One year, they may decide that they're into this retailer or into this other retailer. So the consumer is actually the one with the power. And I think for the last several years, we've been living in this paradigm where a lot of payments companies have decided that integrating with retailers is sort of a safer way to reach distribution. And they've probably underestimated how complex it really is and how exposed they are to the cyclicalities of their businesses and also sort of building business development teams and account management teams. At the end of the day, there's a sort of a mismatch between who their customers are, which are retailers, and who the end users of those experiences are, which are consumers. So we don't have that issue at need. Our customers are consumers. And on top of that, the beauty for retailers is that we don't charge them anything, right? We don't say, hey, go through this painful integration and then pay us a fee. We don't need to do any of that. Okay. So exactly how do you make your money? That's a great question. We make money in two ways. One, we're a payments business, right? So precisely in the process of issuing these cards, every time you make a purchase, we issue a single-use virtual card. Because we are the issuer here, we take the largest chunk of the interchange. And then the second business, it's a very different business. It's actually an affiliate business. The traditional example is publishers. These are folks who like create content and integrate with affiliate networks to sort of get attribution from retailers who have affiliate programs. We are set up as such, and we're able to also monetize some of the sort of inspiration that we are driving with a caveat, which is that in a lot of cases, we pass on that value to the creator of that list. So here's an example. Let's say that I'm somebody who identifies as a creator. I have a number of followers on different social media accounts, and I post content and recommend products. I can create a list on Nate, and I can call it Albert's Workout Essentials. And if I add, for example, a pair of shorts from Lululemon, I'm mentioning this because I'm a yoga junkie, so <laughs> I practice yoga, but presumably somebody else will have it sort of a different taste and so on. But let's say that I create this list that includes these shorts, and I share that list with you. As soon as you follow it, I'll get a notification that says, Greg is following your list. And if you buy those shorts from my list, I will get 5% cash directly in my Nate wallet, which I can use towards future purchases myself. And then you mentioned the social layer on top as far as the gifts and your shopping list. Is that monetized in any way? It's not monetized any differently. In other words, that's actually sort of interesting because the majority of social businesses out there make money from your data, right? Like they create this profile of yours and they sell it to advertisers. We don't have that business model at all. In fact, I see most of the strength of our position here in resolving the tension between a social product and a private product. I think both of those things can be true at the same time. Most of our customers are actually Gen Zers. This is a new generation that has two beliefs that from the outside may seem that they're competing with each other. The first one is they want to share a lot of what they do with their friends. They want to have a social life. The second one is they want to protect their data. And they've been made to believe up until now that if you want to have a social and seamless life, you're going to have to be okay with all these companies selling your data to third-party companies. And that is not necessarily true. You can decide which shopping lists you're sharing with your friends or which purchases you make public or private. And it does not mean that you don't own that information, right? It does not mean that all these other companies are going to find out what you're buying, how you're paying for it, when you're buying it, and so on. Buying with Nate is sort of like actually the most private way of buying online. 
And then you are the only person who has access to that information. And then it's up to you how much you share with your friends, how many lists you share with them, how many purchases you share with them. You are in control of that, but it's your friends only and not third-party companies. In fact, when you buy with Nate, the purchase happens on our servers and not on your browser. So nobody can place a cookie on your browser saying that you bought that item either. Also, we become merchant of record. So your credit card does not have access to what you're buying, right? It just says Nate on your credit card statement or on your bank statement. And so you're creating additional layer of protection and then you're deciding what to do with it, which for some people, it may just be unifying all your shopping and then protecting it. For others, maybe unifying all their shopping, protecting it and sharing it with a group of friends. That may be one person, five people or 5,000 people, depending on sort of your taste. Are there certain verticals or industries that seem to be more popular as far as consumers purchasing through Nate? Definitely. I'd say there are some that are unpopular, meaning nobody buys a tomato with Nate. It's very unlikely that people will use Nate to buy groceries, for example. But outside of that, it's basically anything under the sun. Fashion, beauty, wellness, books, electronics, furniture, all the things that you buy in the non-Amazon economy, you can buy them with Nate. In fact, I argue that all of us have sort of what I called an Amazon threshold. So you may be a 10% Amazon kind of person. I may be a 20% Amazon kind of person. And somebody else may be an 80% Amazon kind of person in terms of like from our own e-commerce share of wallet. But any given year, we give a few more basis points to Amazon compared to the non-Amazon economy. And the only reason for that is because of that amazing one-stop shop feeling that you get of having it all in one place. And so, for example, if you want to buy a pair of Apple AirPods, maybe you buy those on Apple as opposed to Amazon. If you want to buy toilet paper, you'll buy that on Amazon. But how about this in-between situation? So what if you want to buy this yoga mat? This year, you'll buy off of Amazon. Next year, you'll say, you know what? I'm just going to use Amazon because it's so easy. And that in-between is very powerful because it varies by person. But that's when you start seeing a lot of the value of using Nate as your one-stop shop. Because a lot of people, the more you use Nate, the more you realize that for a lot of times when you thought that you needed Amazon, you actually don't. And you can support all these other amazing 2 million retailers in the US that create so much wealth for the country and support the middle class. I, off the top of my head, can't think of a lot of competitors, but I'm pretty sure everyone has a competitor. Maybe explain who you think your competitors are. Like You don't have to use names, but maybe it's how people shop. And then what differentiates you from your competitors? What's interesting is that Nate is not a place to shop. Nate is a way to shop. So in that sense, we are sort of a completely new category and a new layer, if you think about it. So once you buy something with Nate, the order is placed on that retailer's website. The retailer maintains a relationship with you. They receive your name, your email, and your shipping address, just as if you had placed the order with your fingers. What they don't get is your actual payment method, which that way they're unable to sell the last four digits of your card number. But it means that everybody involved in that is sort of not losing value. And so we're creating value from scratch. Unification in e-commerce did not exist before. And by creating that, we're creating value that did not exist. And we are not necessarily like fighting for market share from an existing market. Now, that is not to say that there aren't companies that are adjacent to what we're building. So we are a payments business that spreads like a social business and it has software-like margins. And there are 
a number of companies that are trying to build super apps in the US and elsewhere in the world. And those come from different angles. For example, neobanks that try to sort of add more social features or shopping features or social networks that are trying to add more payments features like wallets. And so different companies are coming at it from different angles. But the idea is eventually a lot of people are seeing the value in this unification of like all your shopping and all your financial services and your friends in one place. And obviously you have to know the payments industry and be well-versed in how it works. So general question, where do you see the payments industry headed in the next, say, two to three years? Wow. I mean, this is perhaps a controversial take because it's one of those things where this industry, the more you dive into it, the more complex you realize it is and the more exciting it gets, right? Like from the outside, the first time you hear payments from the outside, you're like, what do you mean? A payment? Like I just pay for something and that's it. No, no, no. There's a lot of things going on. And then you started learning more about it and realizing that you were just seeing the tip of the iceberg as a consumer. The reason I'm saying this and the reason I'm saying it's controversial is because I think this will happen even more in the next few years. So consumers will not experience any friction whatsoever. It's going to be a world where they will be able to buy anything in the world using any payment method in the world, including any currency, whether it's fiat or digital currency, at any time, whether that merchant accepts that payment method or not, that consumer will still be able to make that purchase with that payment method that they choose at that time. And they will not have to use additional hardware or software in order to achieve that it'll be a very simple identifier. So I think it's going to be even easier for the consumer. Consumer is going to go through life. They're going to see things that inspire them. Think like watching a movie and you're inspired by this hat that this character is wearing or being at a coffee shop and seeing somebody else read this book and you're inspired by the book. All these things, as you go through life, as you see them, you'll be able to buy them. And I've given you sort of IRL examples, but you can also apply these to like augmented reality or even virtual reality, right? No matter where you spend your time, you'll be able to make a purchase on the spot and pay for it with any payment method of your choice, regardless of whether the seller of that item technically accepts that payment method or not. There will be intermediaries in the middle that will make sure that you can do that. Do you think that's five years away, 10 years away, 20 years away? If I knew, I would be a magician, but I'm more in the five to 10. Some of these things are happening right now and we don't see the products live yet because they haven't launched, but they're very much cooking. In fact, we are at Nate, we're actively thinking about how to make sure that we allow you to unify your shopping beyond your phone. So right now you can only use Nate on your phone, right? But in the future, you'll spend time in all these other interfaces. Think like voice assistants, self-driving cars, virtual reality worlds, streaming, all sorts of devices and interfaces that are different from spending all these hours on our phones, which is what we're doing today. Companies like Nate are already thinking of what's coming in the next five years and building for it right now. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. So tell us about your background and your journey and how you became the founder and CEO there. I've been a founder most of my life, but both of my parents are founders. Although weirdly, growing up, I didn't really think that I would be a founder. It wasn't in my mental map for some reason. Growing up, I was really into math and computer science, and I thought I would end up being a math teacher or something because I didn't know anybody that 
had a job in math that wasn't a math teacher. I mean, granted, I was a teenager and the only thing I saw was my teachers, but that was sort of my upbringing. And then somehow I ended up moving to New York for love. I fell in love with my now husband, then boyfriend, and I turned down this job offer at a very well-known management consulting firm in Spain to be here. And nobody would hire me in New York. So I sort of resorted to the only way I knew to create value, which was create value from scratch, meaning start a business. And I called a friend who I knew that had a business that made t-shirts and I asked him, hey, can I buy a thousand t-shirts from you? And I will pay you net 90 and I'm going to start selling them and make a profit and hopefully pay rent and be able to live here because I had to turn down this job offer and they wouldn't transfer it to New York. And he said, okay, fine, here's a thousand t-shirts from an old season that I don't intend to sell anytime soon. You can pay me whenever you can. That's how I started my first business. And I've been a founder ever since. I started many businesses. Some failed rather quickly, luckily, and others allowed me to sort of finance my life. And one of them was a decent success story where I made some money and I was able to pay some debts and then go to business school. So then I did an MBA at London Business School. Then I worked at Amazon doing private label strategy for their soft lines division. And it was precisely my time at Amazon that sort of expanded my view of the world. And I realized deep down I was a founder. And before business school, I guess I was a founder, but I thought that it was by necessity and that eventually I would get a real job. That was sort of the rhetoric that I was telling myself. And it was after business school and after working at Amazon that I realized, actually, no, this is who I am and it makes so much sense, right? And so I came to terms with that and founded Nate. And that was almost four years ago. So from t-shirts to payments, I see the connection. (laughs) That's right. Well, it's (laughs) funny because when I was selling those t-shirts, originally it was a wholesale business that had nothing to do with the payment. I guess I was getting paid via checks of all things. But then I quickly realized that I understood my consumer really well, and I wanted to skip the intermediaries of the stores that I was selling to and go directly to the consumer. And so I built a direct-to-consumer side of the business, which at the time, I wasn't coining that term. This was 2012. I was one of the first Shopify customers. So I sort of became very interested in all things payments early on because I started seeing things like, oh, you know, this payment, somebody bought a t-shirt from your website. I was like, oh, that's exciting. Oh, but it's been marked as suspected fraud and you won't get the money. Or somebody's claims that you charge them wrongfully and we've decided that that's true, so you won't get the money. I'm like, what do you mean? I already shipped the t-shirt. What are you talking about? And so I sort of started becoming really interested in what was going on and what was the experience for the consumer, what was the experience for the retailer. And then at the end of the day, if you think about it, it's sort of like everything is a payment, right? And every transaction, every commerce transaction, whether it's consumer or enterprise, there's a payment involved in any interaction between two parties. So then it's when you start realizing that if you build something in payments, you are immediately in the middle of the value chain and the value exchange. It's complex, but it becomes way easier to monetize. Yeah. What are some things you're passionate about? So maybe one business passion and one personal passion. Business passion. I'm fascinated by applying design principles to all aspects of building a business that is not just what you would traditionally consider design, like product design or marketing design. So think designing a culture, for example, and using organizational behavior frameworks to think about what are the processes, frameworks, and values that intentionally build an organization's culture. Can I design that? 
and which design principles can I use? Can I design the way in which people flow within an office physically? Does that make them feel similar to how they flow within the Nate app? And so Nate is a design-first organization, which effectively means that the design is a single department that reports directly into me, as opposed to it being scattered across the different departments that require design services. And I'm always fascinated by how to do this better because it's challenging to execute. Anyway, I could keep going for hours, but that's sort of one passion of mine in business. The intersection of design and culture, I guess you could simplify that way. And then on the personal side, lately I've been really into the brain development in the early years of childhood because I have a one-year-old. <laughs> and so I've been going down rabbit holes in the internet about how to stimulate her brain at different times and what are the things that she should be learning when she's six months or 12 months or 18 months or 24 months and so on. We often talk about payments and fintech as this ecosystem or this market or vertical in and of itself, which the word fintech, when I got in payments 17 years ago, didn't exist. But it's become a really interesting place to work. So much money and capital has been invested in it in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years. And I think there's now, well, I know there's now courses that kids can take in college. And I think they look at this industry as a place to go to work and build a career. Based on your experiences, what would you say to them that would help them be successful in our fintech payments industry? This probably applies to more than fintech and payments, but certainly I think we are living in a world where a lot of people consider payments or fintech an industry of its own. And I think over time, we will realize that every company is going to be a payments company. In the same way that some time ago, people thought that there was such a thing as artificial intelligence companies or an artificial intelligence industry of sorts. And these days, a lot of companies use machine learning tools to make what they already do better. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is, if fintech is an area that excites you as a young professional, then keep in mind that ultimately, the industries that exist, that really exist, are actually the ones that have existed for centuries. And then new technologies and new ways of doing things start as this separate thing that a lot of people rush to for a number of time. And then it sort of re-merges with the traditional industries. So every company will be a payments company. And how can you leverage this? Well, it may be that you study or work at a company that specializes in something in payments that excites you. For your next opportunity, for your next career move, maybe think outside the box. Like, What is the next company that you wouldn't traditionally associate with fintech that is going to have a layer of payments? as part of their value proposition. And so specialize yourself, but then expand your view of where that really applies because it's going to be applied everywhere. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Well, Albert, we've covered a lot of ground so far about the company, the industry, you and your background. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, nothing. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. And I guess the one call to action for anyone who's listening is download Nate and give it a go. Okay. And I guess going to the app store is the best place, right? Yeah. Go to the app store, search Nate and ATE and download it and make a first purchase and be amazed by the experience and protect your privacy in the process. Awesome. 
Well, Albert, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know your time is very valuable, so I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Greg. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 